podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Hello, I'm Eddie Gibbs and welcome to the second part of The King and AI, our new podcast show featuring the one and only Kenny Dalgleish and of course his son Paul. Now if you listen to part one, this is what the build-up's been all about, it's part two, it's here, it was already recorded, it's in the can, it's the second part and it's absolutely fascinating. I really do hope you enjoy listening to it. So uh, I'm going to take an even bigger jump in years now, and I'm just going to gloss over the uh, the Newcastle and Celtic stints. Uh, and then there was a 10-year time where, uh, apart from the odd stint in the TV studio, we seem to hear less and less from Kenny. Uh, I can't really recall a time where you weren't taking up your seat in the in the main stand at Anfield. Uh, so it's safe to say it came as a welcome news in 2009 when Rafael Benitez invited you to take up a role at the club's youth academy. And uh, as I understand it, you're asked by the club to help find a replacement for Rafa following his departure in 2009. 2010 and subsequently Roy Hodgson was appointed as the club's manager. When that didn't work out, it seemed like there was only one man the fans wanted and uh, you made your long-awaited return as Liverpool manager in January 2011. Now in that first month back in charge, Liverpool fans were gutted to see Fernando Torres leave the club and at the same time excited by the signings of uh, Luis Suarez and Andy Carroll and I wonder just how much of that very public deadline drama had already been played out behind the scenes at the club. You had, had you held out any hope of persuading Fernando to stay at the club and be part of your rebuilding work? No, we just came back in. First game, I was in uh, somewhere near Dubai on a boat <laughs> with Marina when uh, Ian Air gave it, phoned us up and asked if I would come back. I said if I can go off. Ian Air. Ian there said there's a sinking ship. He said, I hope it's not mine. <laughs> I said, if the, boat, if the boat stops, yeah, I'll be able to go off. Um, so, Old Trafford first, and we came back. Um, came back in the bus, and Damien Camoli, who was excellent, uh, said, can I have a word? So he said, look, he said, we've got a couple of things on the go here. He said, uh, for players, he said, Suarez, I said, just take him. That was as quick as that. I said, just get him. And then he said, uh, somebody to help you. He gave me two names. I said, oh, take Stevie. And Stevie was there. This was this, no, maybe the Sunday, the game. Stevie, Stevie Clark. Stevie Clark was there Monday morning to start work. So, um, things started to move very... That? Oh, I don't know. I've seen him on the telly, eh? But um, we used to play front three at Ajax, and it was it was fantastic there as well. So I said uh, we're in a few days training, and Fernando said, "Can I have a word with you?" I said, "Yeah." He said, "Can Stevie come in and and Sammy, Sammy Lee?" I said, "Yeah." So he come in. He said, "Look," he says, "I, I want to go." I said, "Oh, very good." I said, "Why is that?" He said, "Well." Something happened before. I said, well, what, did I say something that upset you? Was it anything to do with me? He said, no. I said, all right. I said, so why are you making us suffer? Why are you telling us you want to go? No, no, he said, I've got to go. I said, okay. I said, if that's what you want, I said, I've not got a clue. I said, so I'll just need to give me a few days. I'll find out. I'll speak to the owners and Damien and find out what the situation is. 
So he was insistent that he went. Um, and he signed for Chelsea. Uh, I mean, I was really looking forward to seeing Fernando playing with, with Suarez. But it never happened. And I'm sure there was a load of there was a load of Liverpool supporters wanting that as well. But Fernando, in the few games that he played whilst I was there, did well. Uh, no problem. Regards that. He, he was at him and made the decision that he wanted to go. So when he was gone and the, the conversations about the fee that we were getting for him, then everybody else, whoever you wanted, they just rocketed. So as I said earlier, if you're getting somebody for less than what um, what you're getting money in for, then you can you can take a chance. So Big Andy was on the was on the radar. And, and brought the big in, and uh, the owners, the owners were very, very supportive of uh, of both things. You said, let, let Fernando go if he wants to go. They said, if you want Andy in, bring him in. So it was Fernando's you... choice to go. It was def- by the way, it wasn't yours. It wasn't yours. Do you know what's into it? But the the just like you've seen with Neymar, when Neymar goes for what he went for from Barcelona to PSG, that changed football. That changed the the transfer fees that were paid. And, and as you said, when, when you get 50 million for Torres, everybody knows you've just got 50 million. So every price that you're going to pay now is just increased. And I uh-huh. think we've we've seen that with Liverpool as well. We saw we got 75 million for, for Suarez, then 100 and however many million for Coutinho. Now we've got to pay seventy five thousand for a centre back and sixty uh, seventy five million for a centre back and, and and sixty odd million for a goalkeeper. That's just the way it happens, you know. It's just the way it happens. Nice. But in football, the certain deals inflate prices. Yeah, but it, it was nothing, David. Inflammation of the price of transfer market it was just the day we one of the one of the favourites at the club wanted to go, yeah. and it's it's always difficult. Uh, to get your head round it, but then again, the club will be there and has been there a lot longer than we have and continue to be mm-hmm. like that. So, and it still happens today. It happened for Jurgen Klopp with Phil Coutinho, didn't it? Just last January, it's a similar situation. One of the better players wanted to move on, and I suppose we can only. Yeah, hope. but but like so for Phil, for the South American boys, once there's an interest for Barcelona, it's really hard for them to turn it down. Barcelona, Real Madrid, and. All you can do is, um, I mean, there was no way Louis, uh, when he was going to go, was going to play anything other than his best, although he, he would be desperate to go. And Phil, Phil would be the same. So the two of them were, were really genuine uh, and gave, were 100% up front with the club. So if they want to go, well, they, they go to go. So you just got to do the best you can and replace them the best you can. With what's available at the time. You know, you, you, oh, can, only, you can only... Oh, you can Yeah. The, the, what I would say, though, Dad, is I would argue that Suarez and Coutinho, once they'd made the decision to go, that they'd, they'd made the decision to go from the outside looking in and, and were allowed to go after they stayed for a certain period of time, I would argue that they had the best form for Liverpool 
during that time that they they agreed to stay with the move at the end of it. Yeah, that's a great and, point, Paul. You know, and and it just shows you the character of of the players to be able to do that. Well, Louis had a fantastic first season with us as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so he went in the, after the third one, I think, didn't he? Yeah, he was. Uh, you were going to do something on his XG at some point, I think, Paul. But that'll be for a future date. <laughs> yeah. The uh, yeah. at the time your dad began his second stint at Liverpool, you'd retired as a player, Paul, and you're now involved in coaching yourself at uh, FC Tampa Bay. Uh, were you able to get a word in edgeways with Kenny on the modern ways of coaching and how sports science had changed the game? I mean, I'm, I'm guessing from the show the answer's going to be no already. But <laughs> no, it was. It was. Look at the end of the day, it's. Football, it is a part of football now. Uh, and I'd, I'd argue I'll let my dad talk about it, but that was probably, I'll let him talk about it, but it was, it was probably the biggest change for him was not what happened on the pitch, but what all the stuff that you had to deal with off the field in terms of medical departments, media, how much that had changed. But he, he can go into more details about it. But I, listen, I, I'm probably the most honest of anybody with my dad and I, uh, and he you know he can be the most honest with me so the conversations don't always as you can tell by listening to us don't always take the the uh the pathway of of agreeance they they, they we we argue and but at the end of the day we whenever whatever decision he made as his son my job was to support him and, and be there for him and make sure that you know if if he wanted to ask a question, then, then ask a question. And if he didn't want to ask a question, then then show him that respect. But I, it was definitely hard for me at the beginning was to bite my tongue because it, there there it was Liverpool, the team that I'd grown up idolising as as a kid and still did. And and now all of a sudden my dad was the manager. I wanted to ask questions, but you, you've also got to be respectful that he needs his downtime. And with the time difference with me being in America, it was normally when I was ready to speak about football, he was ready to go to sleep. So it was. It was. Uh, we didn't speak about it too much, but any decision he made, uh, I, I tried to support. We actually found him, email, didn't we, Dad? Remember when what? I put because I, I used to do things without him asking me to do it. So I put together a short list of players, and I found it in an email the other day, and I sent it to you. You remember? All right. And it was uh, it was interesting just to see where some of those players. But have, you'd you'd Billy Liddell on it. <laughs> <laughs> I had myself on it. Never mind Billy Liddell. That was making a comeback. <laughs> but I know we I know we're a wee bit dinosaurish, right? But when I went to Blackburn, you know Blackburn had a fitness coach, and that's nineteen ninety. Now people talk about how Arsene Wenger, who was fantastic for Arsenal, right, and a good fella, how he invented all this and brought all this into France. They were doing it. At Blackburn, over a champ, a first division side championship, as you would call it now. So they had. I went in and I said, "Who's that guy?" They said, "Fitness coach." They said he comes in twice a week, works with the players. I said, "So, well, how does he work?" They said, "No, there's a bit of gym work and there's a bit of running with him." I said, "Okay." So we came in arrangement. Uh, just do what you're told, you'll be all right. And <laughs> so, but he he was brilliant with us. And he never, ever tried to fill the, the players' heads with magic. He just went in. They did their training. Uh, one or two grumbles, but they did, he did the training. And 
we ran it round about the game, and the game is the most important thing. And he was also talking to them about what they should eat and what they shouldn't eat. So it's no, it's no original. When 85, 86, Craig Johnson was into all this eating. Craig, when he started playing regularly in the double winning team, he was into it. And the, the boys all used to rip him to bits because they, we were into the pies and that and everything else. And he was into the healthy stuff. And as, as uh, Neil Ruddock says, does it help your touch? But it helped Craig. And Craig had a fantastic season. So whatever whatever floated your boat, go ahead and do it. But it's all very well and good having the knowledge, right? The scientific knowledge. But they don't know. You've got to know the individual who you're dealing with. Well, it still comes down to management. The sports science person, and you've got to manage them. Mm -hmm. They've got to go and speak to the coaches. And the sports science fella can't turn around and say, Oh, he might be able to give you 20 minutes. Well, how do you know he gave us 20 minutes? You can't, you, do you know what size his heart is? Do you know how great his desire is to play or train? So you're saying 20 minutes, but, and he might come back and say, oh, it's 20 minutes because you've told him. But he might last longer than that. We might need him for longer than that. So don't tell him. That's up to us to make that decision. He tells us, he would, he would uh, tell us the, the the pros and cons, and then we would make the decision. But once you start telling players, the players know too much nowadays, I think, about their injuries. They're too, too, too well educated. So you think ignorance is bliss in no, I don't some think, I don't think ignorance, but I don't think it's your decision. I think it's the player's decision. And it shouldn't be a sports science. If, it, if a manager can't make that decision, then certainly the sports scientists can't make it. What, what, what basically the, an argument in football is the moment, at this moment in time, is that sports scientists are coming into football and trying to learn football, where it should be footballers that are trying to learn sports science. And there's a big difference. And well, what, what, uh, what I think what you're trying to say, Dad, is because we've had this conversation before, is it, you, it's not, if somebody's injured, they're injured. If the fit, the fit. It, it's not really for me. You can't put, oh, someone's at seventy-five percent, or someone's at twenty minutes, or that's total invention of a number to try and justify the information that you're given. For me, what's much more important is the intensity that they can play at. Can they play at a hundred percent? Can they sprint at a hundred percent intensity? If they can't then play them until they use your experience to judge when they fatigue. If they can't sprint, then they shouldn't be playing in 100% activity. I think I think your eye, if you've got experience, is much better than any instrument can tell you. And, and, and I genuinely believe that. And I think that you've got to, when a player starts fatigue, you've got to get them off because that's when they risk injuries. But if you have a relationship with that player and you understand that player, like my dad said, and you can manage that player, you can tell if you've been a manager and you've managed that player when they start to fatigue. And you can tell if they're right or not with your experience. Because the things that can affect you can your 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 numbers can be affected by 
if you've just drinking coffee or if you've been drinking the night before, your numbers can be affected by lack of sleep. Your numbers can be affected by so many different things. And, and I do think it's important. I do think that it, now clubs are getting much better at using the information and using it to their advantage. And I think Liverpool are one of the best at it. Um, but I do think there is no substitute for, for, for having experience in football and being able to read players during training and games. Would you agree that? No, I think experience is important, but experience doesn't necessarily give you knowledge. Yeah. It tells you what's happened. It doesn't tell you how you can help it. Yeah. So, for me, I, uh, the sports scientists have a role to play, and it's quite innovative uh, field in football, but they've only got a role to play. And the sports scientists should remember uh, that they're no football coaches, the same as we're no sports scientists. They're no football coaches. But if you, as you said, if you get someone in who played football, who understands the football a wee bit, so that he knows what the dressing room is like and how it behaves, then that would be a better way around having the football experience and the scientific knowledge for the players than the other way about having the science knowledge and having to learn about football because that's a hard that's a hard ask to try and get in amongst footballers in the dressing room let, let me ask you a question how was it how did you find it from having a period of time out of football to going back into a, a top massive club the the amount of extra staff like t tell me I, I mentioned a little bit earlier but how did you feel first how did you feel the staff like what was the differences in the staff from your first By time the way, in, in Paul, Liverpool Paul I never had that many in my classroom at school <laughs> <laughs> they're massive so the, tell the me the staff. biggest differences between you mentioned you had a little bit of Blackburn but what were the biggest differences between when you went back to Liverpool and what you left when you left it the first time, in terms of Melwood and the amount of staff there? Well, we never used to train. We used to get ready at Anfield and travelled in by bus. Melwood, we'd never, I'd never uh, changed at Melwood. That was um, Gerard Hooley who brought Melwood to the four-way. Mm -hmm. I'm not so sure. Peter Robinson would still be there. So I'd never been there, but it was it's a fantastic facility. Fantastic facility, and um, but the thing for me was that the number of people who actually worked uh, for the club, with the club, with the players, um, and obviously they, they, they all do a good job. But when you get an awful lot of people working in uh, in the same sort of area, we start to get people try to uh, climb the ladder. You know, you get that that runs its problems as well. So as a manager, you don't need that. The, so they have somebody that looks after the medical department, and instead of the manager speak to everyone in the medical department, he would come back and report to you. So it was an important part of it. Um, but as I say, there's an awful lot of people working at the clubs now. They've got like the masseurs. You've got different types of masseurs. One will do the deep deep muscle massage and one will do something else. And I mean, obviously, it's it's important um, to have it. 
Is it for the better? Does it improve them? Are there less injuries now than what there was before? I don't know. I don't know. Um, but uh, there's certainly there's certainly an awful lot, of people, lot more people working on it when I went back than what there was when I'd left. Did you did you find that they because when you were there the first time, who would do the massages if you needed a massage before a game or after? Ronnie, Ronnie and Joe. So Ronnie, Roy Ronnie Evans, Moran, Joe, yeah, they would they would do the the massages. So they ah. were also coaching on the field, getting the players ready. So did that create uh, a togetherness, that a bond, you know, with with the players no, and the and the staff? No, I think it's easier to form a bond with. with small number of people in it and what it is with, with big numbers. But I'm sure the players I'm sure the players have a great relationship with the people who work in and around the medical departments of football clubs. Did some um, of the players have their own physios that they would work with? Or fitness uh, people that they would work with? Uh, when you went on, back? There was only there was only ever one that, that came and said uh, he's been working with with somebody. And I said, well, I said, that's all very well and good if he's helped me. I said, but um, you don't start bringing him in here. So if it helps you, yeah, by all means, go ahead. But you didn't want him at the training ground? No. No. What about the media, Dad? How about the media? How did you, How did that change? Was it? Did that oh, change changed from the first changed. time to the second time? It changed in the numbers and it changed also in the, the demands on your time. And rightly so. You can't get a, a, a league as, as vibrant as the Premier League and no expect to fulfil the obligations uh, with the media. Um, but, as I say, that the, the, the Premier League itself has grown hugely since the time it started to what it is now. So you would have expected that to happen. Did you? Because that's probably for me, and, and people listening to this, and and people that know you, would that's probably the biggest misperception of of you is your personality based on people have only seen you in interviews, and people actually know you or would hear this and, and hear your sense of humour. And Craig Bellamy did a thing on on um, he was on I think it was the debate on on Sky Sports, and he was talking about media perception, you were talking about Mourinho and then media perceptions and then what people are like in real life and he used you as an example, he said if you watch the Kenny Dalglish interview, you know he came across as, as maybe stubborn or, or cold or whatever he said but he was the warmest person that you could play for and, and the kindest warmest person you could play for and funny and, and why do you think, like what, what why do you think, why did you not let people see that side of you that I know. It goes back to the playing days as well. I'm uh, I'm very friendly with Willie Johnson, who played with your dad, obviously for Scotland for many years. And he always used to tell me, he always used to say, just ignore that from that. That's nothing like the man. You know, what I mean, that's always what that's always what I was told. So I was always watching these interviews and thinking to myself, well, that's not the man. I've been told that's not the man. You know, what I mean, it's a there's a completely different side that you don't get to see. Yeah, but at the end of the day, when when you're in front of the television, you have a responsibility, uh, or an obligation, to to speak with the media before, or after every game, or if there's anything going off, then obviously you, you've got a responsibility to speak to them. But you've also got, uh, for me, a far greater responsibility 
to represent the club that you work for as well as you possibly can. And for me, I would I would put the club before any any story that you gave the the journalists or the TV. Um, I'd I'd never I've never ever failed to go to a press conference before or after a game. And when I left uh, when I left uh, Liverpool, uh, I got a letter from one a journalist. I mean, I know it was the first time round, but from one a journalist that says, "Kenny, you're the most honest manager I've ever had to work with." And that was for a journalist. And I thought, do you know what? That'll do me. Because I think if you have to tell lies, you need to have a good memory. And I've not got a good memory. <laughs> but you so don't enjoy me, it, do you? You don't enjoy the attention, do you? You don't You don't actually like the spotlight. You're much more comfortable in around people that you know and you trust. I think everybody is. Yeah. Well, some people like to... Some people I don't think that's exclusive. No, but I would say some people, I'd say the thing just as your son, having watched you on TV and obviously knowing you, uh, I would say that the biggest, I would say the way I saw it was you try to say as little as possible that couldn't be misrepresented to protect the club. Whereas I think because you weren't really too concerned about what people thought of you, you were only concerned about doing the right thing for the club. Whereas what I think press conferences have become uh, is managers using press conferences to promote themselves. I think that happens as well. Well, I wasn't there to promote myself. No. Um, I was there to protect the club, if that's the right word, and the players. Mm-hmm. And I would protect the players as long as they gave whatever they had to give. And if we weren't good enough, then... We weren't good enough, but you can't. As I say, I don't. I wasn't there to give them a line for for a story or or whatever. I was there to look after the players as best I possibly could, and I thought that was my responsibility in doing that. And what what happened behind the scenes, uh, I think, was reflected in in the results. Because I agree. If you, player, if you if you support your players, then uh, I think you get the reward for that. And you you would never say you'd never say uh, anything that's going to be detrimental to themselves. But if they're out of order, they're out of order. But the one the one thing I would the one thing that I would say and that I would that I would ask is I know the way. Like even when things didn't maybe go as well as you talked uh, in certain situations, you still had players speaking highly of you, not only as a manager, but as a person. Because the one thing that I think that you did, and, and you almost always put the players in the club before you put yourself, was you would take the heat for a lot of situations if it helped the club or it helped individuals. And and for me, one of the things that you did that I was most impressed with, and I think something that a lot of Liverpool fans know you well for, is you never... What managers can do now sometimes is put a separation between the players and the manager. It's like they didn't perform well today. The players weren't good enough today. Whereas 
what you always did was you always made it. If the players didn't play well, it was or or the team didn't play well. It wasn't the players. It was we. It was us. It was always you were always in it together. And I think that's why a lot of players now, even to this day, have a lot of respect for you. I mean, even players, Suarez, and the things that I I look at that I don't look at what a media person says or a fan says about you. I look at what someone like a Lucas Leiva who came from Brazil thinks about you. Suarez asking you to present his award. Things like that are much better recognition than anything somebody in the press or, or a supporter who doesn't know anything about the behind the scenes things can say about. Well, I can go in my bed and I can have a sleep. No problem. I don't need <laughs> I don't need Sound, you. Sounds like you need to go soon. Yawning. <laughs> I know. Is that just listening to me? I'll call you before you go to bed. I'm no, better than worry. Naito. I'm better Paul, than Naito. Paul, don't call me for a fortnight. I've heard enough of your voice. <laughs> <laughs> just one thing for me on the comparison between the uh, between the two phases, if you like, of your management stints at Liverpool. And it, Paul just alluded to it there, talking about the uh, talking about the players. How different was it dealing with players in the first stint to players in the second stint? Obviously, the, the rise of the agent, if you like, took place within that time as well. And uh, players would speak a lot more to their agents. Money, as we've already said on the show, became a much yep. bigger factor. How, how different was it? But... I was never involved in negotiating a player's contract face to face. Anyway, um, I was the people, the people upstairs. They knew how much money they had to spend. They knew what they could afford in wages. They gave me my support, or they gave me their support. Um, so when when there was a, a transfer going on and we're bringing somebody in, they did the negotiations. Peter Robinson the first time. Then we went back the next time. Uh, Damien Camoli did it all. And that suited me down to the ground. And Damien was a wee bit maligned when when he was there and, and I was there because he got the sack um, before I'd left. And people were saying it was because of the players he brought in. Damien Camoli never brought one player in there that I didn't want. Every player that was there between the time I was there and Damien leaving was my choice. And Damien would recommend players that you go and have a look. And then I'd say, no, I don't want him. I want this one. And he would go and get him. So, so that's a pretty big uh, misconception that's out there then that you've just uh, you've just covered there because that I think you've kind of answered a question and gave an answer there but that was that is a misconception of of Camoli that's out there and I mean look at the profit that the club made on some of the players well, that were signed as well. <laughs> well, I don't know, but and I'm not caring about what the finances were. All I'm, all, all I'm saying is that the perception that they put out about the so-called sports director. And even Jürgen said it when when uh, Michael Edwards was appointed. Jürgen said, I'll, I'll pick the players. Didn't he? Yeah. He said, I'll choose which players we want. Michael will put players forward to Jürgen, the same as uh, Damien would have done for myself. And then some players that, that Michael put forward, Jürgen would like, some he wouldn't like. Every manager will have a preference. But the manager like Jürgen will be picking the players to come in and that was exactly the same I picked all the players that came in that we wanted to sign in there and Damien did the finances he did the renegotiations of players wages so 
that was a fallacy. And when when he got the sack, I told the press that. But obviously, if you don't know about it, then it couldn't have been very well reported. But here's here's the thing I would say as well, Dad is you can you've got to be lucky when you bring players in to to a club the size of Liverpool because even if you go into the game. Players that could go on to be superstars for Liverpool, you need to have a little bit of luck at the beginning to for things to go well. If you look at if you look at Allison, Allison I think is going to go on to be a an unbelievable goalkeeper for Liverpool. But if you even look at the game yesterday, everyone is talking about the the incident where he dinked the ball over the attacker's head and then connected a pass. And everyone's going to talk about how great Allison is with his feet. There was two other instances in the game where Allison was outside his box, and, and nearly, it, there was one where he tried to take the guy on, and then he passed it. He ended up making a good tackle, and there was another one where he went outside his box, and he nearly lost it as well. If either of those had resulted in a goal against Liverpool, Allison's start to his career at Liverpool could be different. And that's the little bit of luck you need. You, you've got but, to have that little bit of luck at the beginning for but, you to be a success at a club. But that's no, that's not what we were speaking about. We're speaking about. No, I'm just saying. I'm talking about players coming in. Yeah, but everybody can... needs Paul. There's never, there's never been anybody that's got anywhere in the world in any sphere, any walk of life, if they've not had a bit of luck. Everybody but needs what, luck. What I was going to go to was I think that season when players came in, I think Liverpool broke the record for the amount of times a team had hit the woodwork in a oh, season. Oh, the first season? Right? Yeah. So, I think so what, we, what, what I'm saying they had is, the woodwork, I think we had the woodwork 40 times or something. So, so what, what I'm saying is, is you can say it's luck, bad finishing, because you should have shot three inches lower, but that that is the type of things, and, and, and that is the type of thing, is you, people's, careers at Liverpool because what happens at Liverpool is the pressure of expectation compared to realistic what you should achieve at Liverpool for years was the biggest difference I think Liverpool and Man United have a different amount of expectation a lot of kind of the mentality of playing for Liverpool is established in the first few weeks and how the fans take to you and I think that I think that Suarez obviously well, so he didn't score that many goals in his first few games for Liverpool. Well, he scored in his Paul, first. Did he score in his scored, first game? And then he, had, he wasn't as prolific. He, 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 scored, he came on as a sub and scored. At the start then, of that, if start of his first full season, the first home game against Sunderland, he missed a penalty. Yeah. So it never did him. He never done too no, badly. Did but he? he never scored as many goals in the first ten games, well, did he? As he went on to score I don't know. after that. So uh, next up, in 2012, the delight was there for all to see on uh, Kenny's face when you guided Liverpool to that League Cup win over Cardiff at Wembley. And incredibly, still the last trophy the club has managed to win. There was also that FA Cup loss uh, to Chelsea in that season. uh, And then it was announced that Brendan Rodgers would be replacing you as manager for the following season. Now, the overriding question uh, from that second spell, obviously, is one that Paul's kind of already covered in what was the main difference between being Liverpool manager the first time and Liverpool manager the second time. So I want to focus just on that day at Wembley and the and the delight that was there on your face. How happy were you to not just win that trophy uh, in your second stint as manager, but for the people and how much enjoyment it seemed to bring to everyone that you'd managed to to win a trophy that time. I think it's fantastic for for everybody. I mean, the most important thing, or one of the, the important things about Liverpool is that every part of the club has an important role to play. Uh, whether 
supporters all the way through to directors, players, coaches. Everybody has got anything to do with putting the team on the pitch and coming along and watching them. And I think, for me, a really important part uh, growing up through Liverpool and the success at Liverpool was the stories that the parents could tell to their sons. And I think that is fundamental in why Liverpool have got such a thriving support. And for me, what I wanted to do, I wanted the, 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 that present-day support. What memories to... did you ever give your son at Liverpool? You just mentioned why you made the bus. <laughs> right. so, you never so won anything. No. <laughs> so anyway, so for them to be, for them to be able to tell their sons the story about when they went to Wembley, or that that was, that was for me that was hugely important. And we since uh, the last day, last one anything, there's some grandkids in our family as well now, and that. And what one of them was at the game, so it was poignant, and it was, I think, it was relevant as well for, for what the football club stands for, and the way I've been brought up through the football club. That the family is a huge important part of it, and for them to be able to pass on tales and stories to their their next to kin is, is fantastic. So that was for me the most important thing. And and if you're going to go to a game, and they keep saying about this, well. I don't know what it was called then, but it's a, oh, it was a Carling Cup, the Carabao Cup. Now, by the way, so they're all irrelevant. The cups are irrelevant until you get to the final or the semi-final, and then all of a sudden they become important. So for us to get through the semi-final and onto that against we beat Man City, uh, Bellamy scored a great goal to get two-two, and Stephen scored with a penalty. At, um, uh, I think it was Main Road then, was it? I was at the Etihad. The Etihad, that was all you could offer. I mean, that was a fantastic result against uh, to get through against them because they treat the competition seriously. And for us to bring it back, the only disappointing thing about it was we never got to do a two-race city because it was International Week. And they came back in the train, there was only Carragher and his wife and Marina and I. <laughs> would, you have <laughs> let me, would you have let me at the front of the bus that time? No, you'd have been half the bus. <laughs> <laughs> so just in bringing things to a close, uh, a question to Paul, if I could. Uh, I have to ask this one, and I, I'm not really sure what answer I was going to get. I had a different answer in mind when I first composed the question, but how similar do you feel your uh, your coaching methods and, and management is to that of your dad? And what have you taken from your dad's management career into your own? Well, I, I do believe, obviously, uh, we've discussed football, and I think there's... It, my dad doesn't like the the uh, how modern, complicated the football's become. Well, yeah, the the and the what what you feel and 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 the, the best thing I've got is I've got the best of both worlds because what I feel is happening in football from speaking to my dad, right, and from from listening to listening to kind of modern day coaches and and listening to going to the coaching courses and and, and doing all the studying that I've done really is. Football hasn't changed. What people have done is to justify their existence and to make themselves sound important. They've changed the terms to make it sound like it's new. If if you want to, if if you want to even just go into tactics, right? I explained a little bit earlier about the training methods of Liverpool when they were successful and how it's going back to that now. But if you want to talk about tactics, people people used to talk about. Uh, a four, a four, two, three, one 
was a modern system that, that came in a few years ago. Well, that's what Liverpool played when my dad played. Because my dad that. played... No, but you never knew that. But the Liverpool, that was a 4-2-3-1. That was you as an old-fashioned 10 or a, new, a modern 10 and then rushes the modern 9, two sitting in behind and then two people out wide. When, when Man United played with, with Hughes and Cantona, that was a 4-2-3-1. Cantona played in that pocket. Burkamp, oh, don't you just answer the question? But this is what... This is what I'm telling you, right? This is what I'm telling you. That So what I feel is we're pretty similar, but we have a different way of we have a different way of delivering the same message. Yeah, but to be fair, right? I wasn't a coach. I wasn't a coach. No. I always got people in. And when I first started, Ronnie Moran and Roy Evans were there anyway. They were fantastic. So I didn't have to coach. Um, but if I wanted something done in training, they they would do it. Um, if there was something going on in training throughout my career that I wanted to chip in for, I would. Uh, the coach at Blackburn, um, Ray Harford, was fantastic. Uh, Stevie Clark was fantastic at, at Liverpool when we came back. And if I wanted to chip in, I would. But I, I concentrated on the management side of it because it's easier for the players to speak to a coach that knows how to get the things organised and how to get it done in an organised fashion. The worst thing for a player is to be hanging about waiting for something to be set up. Everything was done for them before they went out. So it was important that if if you're in management, I think anyway, you're, you're, uh, you can identify your weakness, you strengthen it as best you possibly can and you're not afraid of anybody coming in that you think might be looking for your job because if they're the best coach that you can get if you get the worst one in you're going to lose your job anyway so you may as well get the best one in Well listeners that seems like an ideal place to draw a close to the second episode of The King and AI here on AI Pro I hope you've enjoyed both episodes in this fascinating discussion uh, with Kenny Dalgleish and his son Paul what happens here with the show going forward is genuinely up to you. Just as I said last week, if you'd like to hear more podcasts with Kenny and Paul going forward, you have to let us know. We have loads of ideas, and the overriding objective of this podcast is to help fundraising for the Marina Dalgleish Appeal, a charity started by Kenny's wife and Paul's mum, Marina, in order to improve the life of cancer patients. An admirable cause, which already does so much, and you can read far more about that at www marinadalgleishappeal.org that's www.marinadalgleishappeal.org they do have a just giving page and anything you wish to give uh, is obviously more than welcome the best way to give us your comments and feedback for this show is via twitter please feel free to send them to both at anfield index pro and at kenneth dalgleish uh, the comments will be more than welcome and there'll be a great gauge to how much you've enjoyed listening to it Again, we hope you've enjoyed listening to this podcast just as much as Gags, myself, Kenny and Paul have enjoyed making it for you. All that remains is for me to thank Mr. Paul Dalgleish. Thank you, Paul. Thank you very much. Hey, and you know, you know, as they say, you know, you can actually tell how close we are. Do you know my dad and I have 102 Scotland caps between us? (laughs) (laughs) Do do, do you know how many he's got? I think he's got them all. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And of course, the one and only, the great Sir Kenny Dalgleish. Thank you, Kenny. Thanks very much, Ed. But does Paul need to be on it if we're going to do it again? (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> I, I'm the only one that can understand you. You need me. <laughs> no, su- no, no subtitles required here. Until next time, up the reds. Podcast Network.